January 6, 2021 was a moment that will forever live in our history books. But history didn't stop there. As we come up on the one-year anniversary of that day, I've been thinking a lot about all of the people who are fighting for their narrative to be the narrative. In many ways, the House Democrats investigating January 6 may seem very different from QAnon conspiracy theorists in the dark corners of the Internet. But one of the things I've been thinking about is what all the players in this drama have in common. They all feel like they're fighting the good fight. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Cleve Woodson. It's Wednesday, January 5th. Today, what the January 6th commission has learned so far and whether any of it will matter in the end, and the fight for the future of the pro-Trump internet. First, we start with the January 6th commission. Two Republicans and seven Democratic lawmakers who've been charged with investigating what happened that day and how to avoid it happening again. Cleve, we are six months in. This was a committee that started in July, much to the chagrin of Republicans who tried all sorts of things in order to thwart the creation of an investigative body to look into the reasons behind the January 6th insurrection. We are nearing the committee pivoting to a public phase of their investigation. They're going to start putting on public hearings that will last until the spring. And in recent weeks, Benny Thompson told my colleague Tom Hamburger and I that the committee has also started discussing potential criminal referral of President Trump for the obstruction of Congress. That's Jackie Alemany. She's one of the reporters at The Post who's been following the closed-door investigations for the last six months. The numbers alone, I think, give a little bit of insight into what the committee is sitting on. They've collected 35,000 pages worth of documents. They've interviewed over 300 witnesses, some of which have come forward voluntarily, others that have been subpoenaed and have complied with that subpoena. We have spent a lot of time covering people like Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows, and Jeffrey Clark. These are three people who have been voted to be held in criminal contempt, although Clark has not been voted out of the House yet and referred to the DOJ. That's still in process. But these three people are outliers. The rest have been providing the committee with a lot of firsthand details. Last week, we saw Liz Cheney go on a Sunday show and say that they have firsthand accounts of what President Trump Hmm. was doing during this 187 minutes He was sitting in the dining room next to the Oval Office watching the attack on television uh, as as the assault on the Capitol occurred. Uh, We know, uh, as you you know well, uh, that the briefing room at the White House is just a mere few steps from the Oval Office. The president could have at any moment walked those very few steps into the briefing room, gone on live television, and told his supporters who were assaulting the Capitol to stop. It's this fleshing out this 187 minutes that has become really a key question for the committee to find out whether or not what Trump's actions or lack thereof amounts to what Liz Cheney and and Benny Thompson have called a dereliction of duty, why he didn't get out into the briefing room right away, get out on Twitter right away and say, stand down to his supporters to leave the Capitol and stop the violence. 
you mentioned uh, considerable Republican opposition to the commission. Is it is that having sort of an effect or maybe a, a counter effect? Is it succeeding in the effort to sort of delegitimize the findings or what has seeped out so far? So I think it cuts both ways. You know, there was the Washington Post poll that came out this week that showed a significant amount of Republicans do not believe it was a significant day in our country's history and are unlikely to believe uh, the findings and the ultimate report of the January 6th committee. So to an extent, that's working for Republicans. They have successfully convinced their reporters. They've rewritten a different version of history, and that's resonated. But on the other hand, I think that there's also been some frustration that there aren't any Republicans sitting in these hearings, sitting in these hundreds of depositions and interviews, and playing some sort of interference for President Trump. Republicans have criticized McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, for making a potential miscalculation when not putting any Republicans on the panel to at least provide a voice of consistent opposition. And as we're turning to these public hearings where these blockbuster moments are going to be potentially revealed for the very first time, the committee wants to make some of these hearings very visual and and put it together like they're telling a compelling story for the American public, I think that Republicans are going to be potentially even more regretful that they don't have a seat at the table. I see. I see. As somebody who's been sort of covering the ins and outs of this for the last year, like, do you feel like you have a better sense of what happened that day? Like, how does this information help us better understand what occurred on that day, particularly Trump and the White House's role? Yeah, it's actually pretty amazing, Cleve. I feel like for all that I have covered this, there are still so many unanswered questions. And the more discoveries we make, the more questions that I think our investigative team has about what actually happened that day. We've shed a lot of new light on the external operations that were going on, which is what I think Congressman Jamie Raskin would call the political coup that the legal operation taking place at the Willard Hotel in the months and days leading up to January 6th and then in the aftermath, you know, as Trump's closest allies, people like Rudy Giuliani, Bernard Carrick, Steve Bannon, tried to successfully implement various proposals that would ultimately succeed in the delay of the electoral certification process and to send it back to the states. Uh, So we've learned a lot of new things about that. We've also learned a lot about sort of law enforcement failures that happened as well. But what we still don't know a lot about is this 187 minutes. What was Trump doing? Who was he talking to? What information was he getting? And what was his reaction? What were the directives he was giving out firsthand? And that is something that the committee has really dialed in on. And This is why they want to talk with his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and why they're holding him in criminal contempt, because they do want to interview him. He provided 9,000 pages worth of personal documents, but he has declined to do an interview, and they want to get in touch with him to get a firsthand perspective of what Trump was actually saying that day. Even just yesterday, the committee has put out a letter expressing interest in getting 
Fox News host Sean Hannity to cooperate with the committee. Uh, And they revealed in the process that Hannity was in touch with Trump himself about the issue of electoral fraud. So there are still so many things that everyone wants to find out about that day. And it's, you know, it's unclear just how close the committee has has gotten so far to answering that big question. If these people who are closest to Trump, who are calling Trump, who are talking to Trump, don't cooperate or don't say anything, will those details just be lost to history forever? Like, is there a, I'm not going to ask you to handicap the chances of, of us ever finding out about this, but is there a chance that there's just nothing that the the greater public will know about sort of what Trump is doing in that moment? Or are there signs or indications that we will learn more? So the committee has suggested so far, and I think actually Adam Kinzinger even explicitly said this, that they have gotten so much information that they might possibly not even need Trump's cooperation to get a comprehensive historic account of that day. Mm -hmm. The committee has requested the National Archives handover documents and records from President Trump's time in office as it relates to the issue of overturning the election. That is currently being litigated. Trump's lawyers most recently asked the Supreme Court to take up the case after trying to block it. Mm -hmm. Those documents Mm -hmm. are also going to provide a key window. But there are potentially enough people who are voluntarily cooperating to paint a fulsome picture of what was going on and fill in those blanks. When is the commission expected to make its findings public? And what impact will that have on the political landscape? Yeah, so the rough timeline being discussed right now, according to multiple committee staffers, is public hearings are slated to stretch from the winter to the spring. Then there's going to be an interim report publicly released and then a final public report released by the fall before the midterms. The political calculus here is twofold. One, Democrats potentially want to use some of this information, have it out publicly aired before the November midterms election, quote-unquote, integrity is now the most galvanizing issue for the Republican Party, and I think it's a major concern for Democrats. And then the other issue here, aside from, you know, campaigning on some of these findings potentially, is the issue of Democrats are potentially headed to lose their majority. Right now, Republicans have pretty much everything going for them into the the 22 midterms. And if they take back the majority, then Democrats lose a lot of their subpoena and committee powers and can't really move forward with the investigation. It'll essentially become toothless. So there are dual time constraints here that are pushing the committee to get this done as quickly as possible. Jackie Alemany covers Congress for The Post. Alexis Dial produced this story. After the break, we check in on the pro-Trump internet, what QAnon followers are saying, and why it matters. We'll be right back. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. All right, I'm recording. All right, I'll just start at the top. With as straight as face as possible and as clearly as possible, sort of help us understand what is QAnon? Um, QAnon is this giant conspiracy theory that there is this secret, satanic, deep state, including the Democratic Party and Hollywood and the mainstream media, that is sort of waging this uh, war on good values, doing all these evil things around the world, and that on the other side, sort of fighting back against them is Donald Trump, his biggest allies, members of the military, and that this whole war is happening secretly and that there's this kind of mysterious prophet named Q who is kind of reporting back to the faithful about what is happening behind the scenes. Q is a patriot. He is someone that is very much loves his country and he's on the same page as us and he is very pro-Trump, okay? That's Marjorie Taylor Green, a congresswoman from Georgia, talking about Q back in 2017. This was before Green came to Washington. Lately, Q himself, whoever he, she, it, or they are, seems to have abandoned their post. What's left is a vacuum of far-right influencers who are trying to out-yell, out-sell, and out-patriate each other. I think it is petty. I mean, it's really like, you know, you think about online drama and gossip culture. Really, that's that's what we're looking at. I have a father, son, and Holy Spirit question. Is Trump Q? Is Q working for Trump? Are there areas of disagreement about who Q is or who Q was? Yeah, the religious lens on this is the right one because Nobody really knows who Q is. And if you're a Q believer, you just know that he is this key prophet who is all-knowing to this idea. And so there have been a lot of, like, you know, grasping at straws. Like, was General Michael Flynn Trump's old national security advisor? Was he Q? Or was it maybe somebody else in the government? Was it Trump himself? We don't really know. But the big thing for QAnon believers now is that We haven't heard from Q in now more than a year. He used to drop almost daily, you know, 3,000 or 4,000 or so cryptic messages, and now he's just gone totally silent. So it seems like whoever was pushing the QAnon hoax has now kind of moved on, and it's created this giant void that people are just pouring their own meanings into. Help us understand what QAnon is becoming. So they hit a snag when President Trump lost and exited the White House and flew down to Florida. And the whole sort of storm that they had been calling for and this grand awakening that Trump would preside over totally went kaput. And so in the year since, QAnon has both sort of moved into all of these different sorts of new ideas, like being very anti-vax, but It's also kind of splintered, and a lot of the people who used to sort of rally under this one QAnon cause are now kind of grasping at, well, what do we believe now, and and who do we want to follow? And and I think as this is splintered, 
Can you help us understand the varying size that it is splintered to? I, I feel like a boxing announcer saying, well, in this corner is this person, or over here, sipping from this tumbler is this person. But who are, are, are there some definitive factions that have emerged, and, and who sort of spearheads those factions? Yeah, it's just this giant schism, right? And the big sort of core of it is really just sort of pro-Trump people. Then there's more sort of the kind of just American political movements that are in, you know, school boards and pushing anti-critical race theory things. None of these are, again, connected to the basic QAnon ideology, which was very much like Hillary Clinton is evil and sort of similar to the old Pizzagate theories from before that we're alleging there was this big deep state. I mean, it's really kind of evolved or devolved into just pretty much promoting whatever the conspiracy theory on the far right is today. But the big sort of factions now are kind of aligned with people like General Flynn, who was always kind of a legend among the QAnon people because he was in the military. He was very supportive of QAnon. He took what's called the QAnon Pledge. Where we go one, we go all. Where Where we we go go one, we go go all. God bless America. While some in the Republican Party were saying, okay, this is a little too kooky for me, General Flynn really backed it in a big way and legitimized this, you know, kooky thing that believers really wanted to be legitimized. So General Flynn has been a big part of that. But there's also, you know, a faction that's been... Over the last year, like the Stop the Steal faction, who thought wrongly that there was mass voter fraud, that there was this huge dark political system that had screwed Trump out of his rightful victory. And that sort of Stop the Steal movement was really led by people like Lynn Wood, the attorney. In my opinion, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a communist. If Marjorie Taylor Greene running around saying impeach Biden... That says that Biden won. He didn't. And Sidney Powell, who was General Flynn's attorney. It was obvious to me from the mathematical and statistical impossibilities that occurred the night of our election. I already had some knowledge of the ability of voting machines to be tampered with. And this whole, you know, as, as they used to call themselves, like a big strike force that was looking and hunting down supposed voter fraud. In the last year, the Stop the Steal movement has really kind of hit its own issue because there was no big steal to begin with, and a lot of their like legal actions have collapsed. But that movement has become its own real force on the right. And, you know, while they're gaining some success in local political offices, they're really kind of facing their own headwinds in terms of getting swatted down in court and facing all these big legal bills. So, Drew, what does this fighting look like? How is it playing out? Yeah, so all of this fighting is playing out online. And, you know, a lot of it has been propelled most recently by uh, Linwood and his duels with Kyle Rittenhouse, who was a shooter in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who used to be represented by Linwood, then went on Tucker Carlson and said Linwood was, uh, you know, kind of keeping him in jail to raise money. Um, I believe Lynn Wood and John Pierce used me for their own um, pawn. That's part of the reason why I fired them. 
anyway, it gets very complicated, but sounds this, like it. Yeah. This fight just became like this big personality clash between people like Glenn Wood and Michael Flynn and Sidney, who were all sort of dueling with each other. And how it plays out is like people going on podcasts to say nasty things about the other side or going on Gab and Telegram to post mean comments and messages and riling up their audience against the other side. You know, we've also sort of seen it get into like very personal kind of moves like, you know, with Lynn Wood, it's come out that he has recorded a lot of his phone calls with people who used to be his like closest allies. I know you're mad with me, Patrick, but it is what it is. I, no, I only you're spoke to you. And in the last couple months, as some of this like Rittenhouse duel started to pick up, Lynn Wood started to post these recorded phone calls that he had been talking with uh, Michael Flynn and people like Patrick Byrne, who used to run Overstock.com, but has become this big stop the steal financier. So he's been posting these, you know, recorded phone calls on Telegram. So it's become this like very heated battle between people of, you know, even using their own words against them and trying to get their audiences to sort of like not support them anymore. And you're seeing that kind of just play out constantly on social media, wherever these people are building an audience. I'm going to be honest. You sound like you're really into it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm into no it. No judgment. No judgment. Because, yeah, I'm into it because, like, hey, I watch reality TV. I see why this is compelling. But I'm into it really because, like, this says a lot about our culture right now, like in 2022. We are all trapped in our homes. The internet is our life and our work, it's our media. It's like, where our favorite influencers are. I mean, these are real relationships for people. The fans of people like Michael Flynn and Lynn Wood, they are really engaged. And so they're logging in every day to find out how their hero is doing or what their villain did yesterday. So, um, you know, it's, it's like you want to dismiss this because so much of it is absurd, but these are real, real chapters in people's lives that are affecting not just how they live, but like how our government and our society actually runs. Well, and there's real money involved, right? Like when I when I think of an influencer, I think of a, an attractive 20-something on Instagram, you know, telling me to buy I have no hair, but telling me to buy shampoo and I'm just going to be like, "Yeah, let's let's get this because but what is the monetary side of this look like? What does the swag side of this look like?" Yeah, there's a huge swag side to this, right? Because like these are influencers. They're not, you know, yeah, shilling for like shampoo on Instagram, but all of these people have their own merchandise stores, right? They're all selling t-shirts and coffee cups and swag because the internet makes that really easy. But a lot of them also sell like subscriptions. Like if you want to listen to my podcast or get my newsletter or even like gain access to my little independent group, you have to be so loyal that you pay me money every so often. Some of these people go to paid events or conferences or rallies that they charge tickets for. That's, again, more money in the pot. Some of them have books and more like traditional kind of sales stuff like that. So there really is a business for these people and they're doing it kind of full time. So this is this is like the career that they have established. And inside QAnon and the pro-Trump internet, the word of the day really is grifter. Like, 
everybody accuses the other side of being a grifter, like not really being authentic in what they say, just sort of saying what they need to say to build an audience. And from the outside, kind of both sides are doing that. Like, you know, in a lot of these debates, whether it's Lynn Wood versus Michael Flynn or Gab versus Rumble or Alex Jones or Trump, they're all kind of accusing the other of being a PAY patriot, like just being in it for the money, not really believing in the cause, not believing in Trump or American conservatism or whatever. Everyone is trying to convey that they are the real hero. They are the one to believe. And the other side is just in it for the cash. As we go into my favorite version of the word patriot, I looked at your story and I also looked at the Sydney Powell 22-ounce Triton Tumbler 4-pack for $80. It's I, I Googled this and found that it is actually a thing and that it, it is $80 for four plastic cups that have what I can only describe as some like Microsoft clip art version of the Kraken. There's a picture with sharks in the water. I guess the question that I have is your average adherent of QAnon, do they look at this? Is, are there people that are buying this literally or figuratively? Yeah, I think there are. And it's hard for us really to know, like, okay, how big of a business is this really? But these movements are real. And the fact that they could even start selling this stuff is an indication that they're aligning this with loyalty. Like if you are really a fan or if you're really a supporter of this movement or Trump or QAnon, like you're going to buy into this because this is how we keep our side alive. This is how we fight the good fight. And so it's funny because it is just like plastic cups online. Like this is ridiculous in a way, but it's also kind of a symbol of the expectation that these influencers, you know, these QAnon promoters have for their audience. Are you really on our side? And if you are, you'll contribute in a way like you'll help me keep doing what I need to be doing, which is fighting the evil pedophiles on the left or in the deep state and helping me keep saying things on Telegram by paying for my podcast. And that's why I find this so interesting. Like when you cut to the quick of it, they're content creators. They're just the same as people who are streaming themselves playing video games, streaming themselves doing makeup tutorials. And their theme is conspiracy theories. And, you know, this view on the world that is very fearful and angry and um, triumphant over the evil side. And so, you know, part of that treasure that they're chasing is... The money. And the other flip side of this is that they need to raise money because a lot of these hoax lawsuits that, especially the Stop the Steal people have been filing, facing pressure from companies like Dominion, the voting machine company that says, well, all this disinformation that they were sowing is actually really bad for our business. Like they're facing huge legal bills. So it's not just like, hey, we need money to, you know, like pay our mortgages, it's like, oh, crap, we're actually facing these huge legal ramifications for all of the lies we've been telling people for the last year. So there's, I think, an increased pressure from them, too, to like, turn this disinformation they've been selling into an actual defense against all these bills that are coming due. Has this organization, has QAnon collapsed on itself? Or is it just sort of in this meandering sort of hibernation state only to arise again? Yeah, you can't be certain about anything, right? Like all of this is cyclical. 
2015, there was infighting in the Republican Party. Nobody could agree on anything. And, you know, everybody was yelling at Trump and Trump will never survive. And we all know how that turned out, right? And even in the last days of Pizzagate, when the guy actually brought a rifle into a pizza restaurant and Pizzagate was facing headwinds and people were saying, "Okay, well, this thing is finally done. We can all start laughing about it now. QAnon rose from the ashes and became way bigger than Pizzagate ever was. So all of these factors, the big thing out of this infighting is none of these people are saying, "Okay, well, now we're fighting with each other. Now I'm going to start believing reality and I'm going to be Fauci's biggest fan and I'm going to face the music like these conspiracy theories tend to spin people into other conspiracy theories. So the splintering of dangerous extremist theories, that is something to celebrate, but it ends up being that it fuels other craziness. And that is something to worry about. And so I don't think we can count really any QAnon promoter out. I don't think we can count Trump out in terms of gaining an audience. And 2024, I mean, a lot will happen between now and the election. I don't think we can effectively predict anything when it comes to that. It's easy to think that this will all just sort of collapse in a big ball of flame, but these things can sort of rise very quickly and change in ways that we really can't expect. Drew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hopefully I can see you in person. Maybe we can share a drink, but probably not in a Release the Kraken Tumblr. (laughs) Yes, I would love that. And thanks for having me. Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for The Post. Jordan Marie Smith produced this story. Today's show was edited by Maggie Penman and mixed by Sam Baer. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, and we're going to talk about what's happened to our democracy since then. I'm Cleve Woodson. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.